0: You are listening to audio from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 3. 1 Timothy, chapter 3. Continuing our study through this letter written by the Apostle Paul to his associate, Timothy, who he has left in the city of Ephesus to pastor the work, the church that the Apostle Paul was very instrumental in planting and developing. He was there for several years, poured a lot of his own life and time and ministry into that city, something of a hub city of its day, a very uh, central commercialized city, a very popular city of its time, a wealthy city. And from the city of Ephesus, many other churches were planted as people would come through Ephesus, receive Christ, hear the gospel, and then go on and plant works in other communities surrounding the church of Ephesus. And we know that Paul is writing to Timothy for some very specific instruction, wanting to speak directly to the pastor in order to implement God's instruction for the church. We're reminded of 1 Timothy 3.15. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Paul writing to Timothy, but we know it's the Holy Spirit providing guidance through the apostle to the pastor for the church. And so today, these are worthy studies for us. Don't we want to know how to conduct ourselves in the house of God? Don't we want to know what our mission is as the ground and pillar of truth in our generation? These are practical things, challenging things, even as we looked at last week, some controversial things because God's instructions for church do not always comply with the, you know, the, the trend and thinking of the culture. So much more important that we know who we are as God's church, that we know who we are as God's people and why we gather and what is our purpose, not only what we glean for our own lives spiritually, but who we are as a group corporately in our time, in our generation, how God wants us to represent Him. So far in our study through this letter, just by way of review, we, we've we seen that Paul is very focused on to give Timothy the instruction of maintaining pure and sound doctrine, to confront false doctrine and, and to stop false teachers. Also, talking about the priority of prayer. First of all, I desire that all men everywhere pray for all men. And so we saw that emphasis on prayer. And then most recently, last week, even Paul's, God's instruction to the church concerning conduct and roles and authority, men and women, men to lead and pray with godly lives, lifting up holy hands without wrath, without conflict and doubting, women to adorn themselves modestly, to demonstrate godliness through their conduct and their good works. And then God's plan for leading the church, that the doctrinal teaching of the church would be assigned through pastoral leadership that men would lead and teach, that women would willingly learn and submit to God's order of authority, and together this complementary role of men and women working in the church, living their lives out in the church. Today, chapter 3, Paul will now expound on this idea of godly leadership. He's going to talk about qualifications. And that's the title of today's message, Qualifications for Leadership. Now, before you tune out and say, well, I'm not a leader, good thing I don't have to pay attention. Listen, these are Christian virtues that are good for all, but essential for leadership. I would say all Christians are called to walk and grow in these virtues. But in order to be used in leadership, these things must be established and developed in your life. And they come to us through a relationship with God. These are not qualities that we work up in our own kind of uh, effort and willpower. We commit ourselves to these things, but ultimately it's through the relationship we have with God. Jesus said, abide in me and my word abide in you and you will bear fruit. Apart from me, you can do Nothing. So these things come to us through relationship with God, through a disciplined, sincere desire to allow God's purpose, to allow God's Christian character to be fashioned in our life. And as you know, it's a journey. We're all a work in progress. But these are the qualifications that Paul will des- describe to Timothy. These are the things you need to look for, Timothy. Look for these qualities in those that you would call to raise up in leadership. Take a look with me just in verse 1, and then I want to talk a little bit about that, use it kind of as an introduction to the rest of the text, but then we'll hopefully get through as many of these as we can today. We'll see what we have time for. Verse 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, I'm reading out of the New King James Version, and today I will be referencing some of the other translations which I think add a little insight into the meaning of the text. Because we don't normally talk about bishops. We talk about pastors, we talk about ministry leaders. There are still in some churches the idea of bishops, but the, the word bishop, and I want to talk a little bit about some of the words that the Bible uses to define leaders. The word bishop is the Greek word episkopos. Some of you may uh, put the connection to the Episcopalian denomination. And the idea is an overseer. And many of the other versions, the NIV, the ESV, they say if a man desires the position of an overseer, someone who has spiritual oversight for the congregation, in charge of watching over the spiritual well-being Of the church. Of course, it would include teaching and maintaining a doctrinal integrity, but it goes into many areas of church life, and there are men that God has called to oversee, to lead. Another word that we often see in the New Testament concerning uh, leadership uh, is the word often translated elder, and it's the Greek word presbyteros. And there's another denomination close to that, isn't there? The Presbyterian Church. These are churches that have taken words out, the Greek words, out of the New Testament instructions about leadership, and they've kind of blended those into their denominational organization. And that's a word that means elder, someone that is mature in faith through experience. It doesn't necessarily mean an older aged person chronologically, although it can be, and oftentimes it is, but it means someone that is at least mature in faith. You may be young and advanced in years spiritually, because if you walk with the Lord, you're experience with the Lord, but somebody that has a maturity in their faith. And we see that Paul writing to Timothy tells him to look for episkopos, those that are called to leadership in oversight. In Titus, Paul writes a very similar instruction, but he uses the word presbyteros. So we see these words sometimes used interchangeably. We ought not to take too much you know differentiation on these words, because we see Paul uses them kind of almost the same. Another word that often appears in the Scripture is the word that we translate pastor or shepherd. It's the Greek word poimen. And again, this is another word that seems to be used almost interchangeably. I give these to you just so that you'll you know, as you read and study the word yourself, you'll see that these are the terms God's word uses to describe leadership. I want to quote to you 1 Peter chapter 5. I hope to have this for you up on the overhead. And I've underlined and kind of inserted the Greek words. You'll see how these words get used almost simultaneously and interchangeably. Peter, the elders, presbyteros, who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that be, will be revealed, shepherd, poimen, the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, episcopos, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Peter says, listen up elders, presbyteros, I want you to shepherd, pastor, the flock, poimen, as good overseers, episkopos. So the leaders, these terms are used almost interchangeably to describe the office and the function of God's leaders within the church. You may remember in Acts chapter 20, when the apostle Paul called the elders, the presbyteros, from the church in Ephesus, to meet him, as he was journeying close by, and he brought them together in acts twenty and verse twenty eight he tells them, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock which is, which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, to shepherd, poimen, pastor, the Church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. This is just a little kind of insight into leadership in the church, because this is something that's often asked within church family. You know, how do we organize? Who decides? Who's in charge? How do we, you know, biblically apply a leadership within the church? And one of the things we notice in the Scriptures is there doesn't seem to be any, in the New Testament, any real dogmatic, clear, structural organization The emphasis seems to be more on the character of the leader than the actual structure of leadership within the church. And as a result, we have many different organizational styles in the church today and throughout history. And I think it's by design. I think that God wants enough flexibility so that we can implement leadership biblically yet not rigidly in order to accommodate the various types and styles of ministry and leadership that is comfortable for God's people. And yet there are some clear, timeless essentials and foundational truths that cannot be avoided in all church and leadership if you're going to do things biblically. Another word, and we won't go into great detail on it today, is the word translated deacon. Diaconos. Paul talks about this later in chapter 3. We won't see it here today, but in our studies in the future. And it really literally just means servant. And as Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, look, everybody's a deacon. Everybody is a servant. All Christians are called to serve. But there are also at times clear roles of service and ministry leadership that are given to what we would call Deacons, those who assist the elders, overseers, and pastors, those that have specific roles of service within the local church. This gets down to the practical, uh, you know, coming together. We need ushers. Uh, we need, you know, we need coffee, don't we, in the morning? We need hospitality ministry out there making coffee for us. We need children ministry. For our church, because of our setup and takedown, we need a whole crew of deacons, a whole crew of servants to help just practically keep the ministry moving forward, worship leaders, children ministry, sound people. All of these are servants given some specific responsibility in the church, and even deacons have a list of qualifications for anyone to serve. There should be a clear Christian virtue manifesting in their life. Many of these roles do overlap. Leaders are certainly also called to be servants, and servants are often uh, good leaders by example. It's not that, you know, you do this and nothing else. This is just one of the clear responsibilities that has been given. But, of course, we all serve and help each other based on what is needed and based on the Lord's leading. And we do see, as I mentioned, a lot of variety of leadership implemented in the New Testament churches and in ours. And many people sometimes will ask me, you know, what, what about our church? What about Calvary Chapel, Monrovia? What, what kind of structure do we have? And, and we try to take and glean what we have from the New Testament along with what we see God doing in other places of leadership, even in the Old Testament, the way God led The children of Israel in the wilderness. The Apostle Paul refers to them as the church in the wilderness, and we see God leading through through Moses, that, that senior leader, but also we see Moses raising up a number of associate leaders to help him lead and navigate the church there in the wilderness. So without going into great detail, because some do ask, I want you to know our church primarily is led by pastors, Uh, You could say elders. You could say, uh, you know, um, overseers. We usually use the term pastor. We have a senior or lead pastor. That's me. I have assisting pastors that come alongside to help oversee the spiritual care for the church. And then we do not use the formal term of term of deacons, but we do have many servants, ministry leaders, that assist and serve here in the ministry and help the pastors implement the spiritual guidance and care for the church. We also have a formal board of elders. These are men that assist primarily me in general oversight for the church not necessarily the spiritual care for the church. I have my associate pastors, but maybe we would say a focus on the business side of the church. There are financial decisions that have to be made in the life of a church. There are certain accountability safeties that have to be put in place. And that kind of oversight is overseen by a board of elders. These are men who are mature in the Lord, men who are very vested in the work here, very, very foundational in the initial starting of this work, and we meet as a board on a regular basis overseeing those kinds of matters for the church and making decisions. So that's kind of how we are organized. I I would say Calvary Chapel as a whole, as a movement, has tried to be as organized as necessary, but not so organized that we become kind of rigid and inflexible. We want to allow the Holy Spirit to ultimately lead the church. We want to allow the Holy Spirit to ultimately guide and direct us, and we we trust that with the leadership he's, He's raised up and put in place, we will be prayerful and sensitive to be led by Him. So let that be just a little introduction to this topic today. Let's get back to the text now and look a little more closely. Again, verse 1, this is a faithful saying, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So ministry begins with a desire. Ministry begins with something that the Holy Spirit begins to stir in the heart. This is not some career choice. This is not some, well, what do I feel like doing? Hey, I know. I'll go into the ministry. No, it's a desire that we believe God begins to cultivate and draw in the heart. Now, not all are called to be a a spiritual overseer, a pastor, but I would say all ministry starts with a desire in the heart, and all are called to ministry, some specifically to pastoral ministry, but all ministry begins with a stirring, a desire in the heart, and it is something that all believers are called to. I remind you of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and 12. And he himself, speaking of Jesus, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. In other words, just some are called to these ministry roles. But verse 12 what are they called to do for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry for the edifying of the body of Christ so some are called specifically to ministry responsibilities which include equipping all believers for the work of ministry so all of us are vested in ministry all of us are called to be servants of Christ. All of us are called to function together, connected as his body, as his church. And that's why it's important that we have good leaders, but it's also important that we all allow the Holy Spirit to create desire for ministry. It's the natural result of a healthy relationship with God. I, I submit to you that as you walk close to the Lord, it will be just automatic. Maybe it'll take a little time. But as you draw closer to the Lord, he is going to stir up a desire in your heart to be useful to him. It is the natural fruit, outworking byproduct of a healthy relationship. As you draw close to him, as you respond to what he has done for you, when you think of God's grace, when you think of his love, when you think of the gift of his son sent to to die on the cross for your sins, that you might know forgiveness and grace, that you might have purpose and meaning and abundance in this life, that you might have the hope and promise of eternal life. As that grace, as that reality grows in your heart and your understanding, you cannot help but respond by saying, oh God, what would you have me to do? Oh God, how can I serve you? Isn't that normal? When somebody really blesses you, don't you just feel obligated in some regard? God I've got to do something for you. Look you've been so generous. Let me do something for you. And this is the way the heart should respond, and I believe does respond, and the Holy Spirit helps activate that. God will give you those desires. God will give you that that direction, as you pursue it, as you give place to it. I've shared my personal story with you over the years. I won't give you the the full-blown version of it, but just to say that there was a time in my life, through my own sense of being unworthy and disqualified, that I suppressed any desire for ministry. I wouldn't allow it to exist in my heart. I kind of quenched it. No, no, not available. Don't want to think about it. I'm just going to be a good Christian and do my work and, and, you know, go to church and be engaged. I'm not saying I was, you know, completely disconnected, but there were certain desires that God had put in my heart many, many years ago that I would not allow to surface. But over time, by God's grace and by God's Holy Spirit, I couldn't keep those things down. Eventually, the Lord awakened them through a ver- variety of circumstances. Some of it trial, some of it a crisis in the family, some of it uh, health related. When my wife went through a very serious health episode, she's recovered, she's well. But I'll tell you, that causes you to rearrange priority, and ministry calling began to awaken again in my heart. And let me say that as I give place to that, as I allowed those dreams to kind of come back to my heart, they became overwhelming. I could not keep them down. I became intensely desiring the use of uh, to be used in ministry. As you give place to these things, God will strengthen them, God will awaken them. And let me say the desire for ministry is only the beginning. But Paul is starting here at the beginning, it's a good thing to have that desire. If you desire ministry, it's a good work that you desire. Now, let me say, it is work. (laughs) Ministry is work. God will put you to work. If you think ministry is something other than service and work, well, then you don't understand ministry. God wants you to put you to work in his field, in his project, in his harvest, and he will enable you and empower you to do it. And when you taste that, believer, and many of you have, once you taste that that place where you know this is what God has called me to do, and I see fruit, I see the effect that God is having through my life, once you taste that, really nothing else will satisfy. You begin to realize that's Part of why I'm on the planet is to see God bearing fruit through my life. Well, the desire comes, but there must be a corresponding fruitful relationship. There must be the Holy Spirit active in my character. Oh, I can have great ambition for ministry, but if I don't have God's Spirit developing my character, there's nothing to support that ministry. Look with me now. We'll read through this and come back and cover, as I said, as many as we can. Verse 2, a bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up with pride he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Quite a list. I count 16 qualifications listed in just these few verses that Paul gives to Timothy, little bullet checklist, if you will. You know, maybe, maybe Timothy had mentioned to Paul, you know, Paul, I got a lot of guys that would like to kind of get into the ministry. Fine. It's good. That's a good work they're, they're aspiring to make sure these qualities are in their life. Make sure these qualifications are already a part of their life. You see, ultimately, ministry is something that God develops and purposes through our life. You don't recruit someone into ministry. You don't appoint someone into ministry. God calls, God equips, God develops the fruit of His Spirit in that life, in that character, and then ministry just begins to flow. The church really just recognizes what God is doing in leading people to ministry, not choosing, hey, what do you think about being in the ministry? Come on, and and I got a few classes to teach you, and, and why don't you, you know, enroll in Bible school because, you know, if you're interested, we could use you. It doesn't work that way. It would, it would work more like this, a pastor or a, a leader saying, you know what? I see things going on in your life that give a clear indication that God is calling you. God is drawing you. God wants to use your life, not because I'm choosing you, but because the Holy Spirit is choosing you. And in that setting, we would encourage, get yourself ready. Go for it. Pursue it. Here are some practical things you can do. These are the qualifications that we see listed for us. And we'll work through as many of them as we can today. I, I, 16 is a lot. I'm going to go through some of them quicker than others. And we may not finish today, but we will finish soon. The first thing we notice is blameless. And maybe this is a general introduction, to all the qualifications, because blameless is pretty general. The NIV, the ESV, interp- uh, interprets that word above reproach, an opening summary of character. Now, none of us are perfect or sinless, but this idea of blameless is that there is no sinful practice or lifestyle that would allow a reproach or an accusation, a, f- a true accusation to discredit you from ministry. There will be accusations. Oh, there will always be accusations. Jesus was accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. Jesus was accused of his ministry was empowered by demons. If Jesus was accused falsely, well, Anyone who sets their hand to the plow, anyone who wants to serve in ministry, if you don't like being accused, well, then you better not step out because you are, you will receive accusation. There will be conflict. There will be forces that want to discourage and resist you moving forward in the Lord. The point here is not that there would never be accusation, but that there would never be any ground for accusation, that those accusations would be simply false and not true, and they would not merit any disqualification for ministry. A good example in word and deed and lifestyle, blameless. The second quality, the husband of one wife. The NIV translates this, faithful to his wife. And the literal rendering of this is a one-woman man the emphasis here is on the moral sexual character of the man, not the marital status of the man. If we took this literally only in regard to marital status, the husband of one wife, well, then we would have to disqualify Jesus because he had no wife, he was single. We would have to disqualify Paul because at the time of this writing he had no wife, we know that he was single. This is not talking about a marital status. What about a pastor whose wife passes away? He's a widower. Is he not free to remarry and continue in ministry? What about those who have gone through a biblical divorce and allowable remarriage? Are they now not available for ministry? They could have only had... You have to have a wife and it can only have had one wife. No, this is, I believe, better translated, faithful to his wife. This means he's a man that loves and holds affection only for his wife, not an adulterer, not someone engaged in outside activity from his marriage sexually, not a flirt, not some... uh, romantic interests outside the wife, no games at work, no playing and flirting and engaged in emotional, you know, affairs. This is a man who has eyes for his wife. He's not entangled in lust. He's not entangled in pornography. He has a sexual purity and fulfillment in his, with his wife. And this is a quality that is required to lead God's people and God's church and how we have seen this area of weakness take down many a leader. It's a dangerous, dangerous area to give place to. I speak, of course, to leaders. I speak to my own heart as a pastor with fear and trembling. But listen, I speak to all Oh, that we would engage in moral purity and integrity. The culture is just throwing it in our face. It is so available. It is so prominent. It's almost, I mean, you have to be really intentional to guard your heart, to guard your eyes, to guard your thoughts. But to be a leader of God's people, this needs to be a man who loves and is committed to his wife. Number three, temperate. This carries the idea of sober. This carries the idea of circumspect, thoughtful in his lifestyle. This is a man who's not given to, you know, extremes or excess. He's not given to extravagance. He lives his life with a certain moderation, a balanced life, you might say. And I'll tell you, in ministry, there is a balancing that needs to be developed. You do have to learn how to manage the competing areas of your life. There is ministry, there is marriage, there is family. Oftentimes, there is work alongside ministry, financial, uh, you know, work that you need to do to support yourself in the ministry. And all of these can compete for time and interest and energy, and a temperate man learns to manage those by the Holy Spirit you know, even recreation, you can even become an avid sports fan and become a little bit excessive, right? Unless, of course, it's the Dodgers, then you're okay, right? <laughs> I mean, let's just be, I mean, clearly the Lord is all over that one, right? I mean, temperate. Number four, sober-minded. The ESV, English Standard Version, translates that self-controlled. Some of these words are very similar and and really kind of communicate a very similar attribute, but good judgment, sober-minded, well-disciplined, a disciplined thought life, not given to impulse, not given to whims of the flesh, not overreactive in emotion. You can't have a leader who is just overreacting to every crisis and every situation, panicking, and running to the worst conclusion, overreacting, that's not good leadership. Leadership needs to be sober-minded, thoughtful, taking, taking time to pray and consider, taking time to work things through with, with the Holy Spirit. Number five, good behavior. The ESV, the NIV, interpret this, respectable. This has uh, the idea of a good reputation, Someone with an orderly lifestyle, not a chaotic lifestyle. Someone who has even, we would say, um, social graces. In other words, you're polite. Uh, you're, you, you have a certain dignity in the way you walk and carry yourself. You're not rude. You're not, ru- you're not rash in your behavior. Respectable, good behavior. Just someone who's managing their life clearly under the direction, under the control of the Holy Spirit. Don't you think that's the way Jesus lived his life? You know, as you read the Gospels, it just seems like he was always on keel. You know, even in the worst of times, even in the, in the, the worst of crisis, when the disciples were losing their mind, what are we going to do? Jesus just had a self-control about him. He just had a, a grace about him. Was he a leader? Was he strong? Was he a man? Oh, yes, he was. But he had a quiet strength, and yet when he spoke, it was truth. It was accurate. It was, it was ministry. And that's the character that we long for, to be like Jesus. You don't see Jesus ever in a rush. He never seems to be late, Right? I don't know if he was late, but he wasn't. Never, didn't seem to be in a hurry. He seemed to always be in step with the Holy Spirit. Number six, hospitable. A generous and cordial reception of guests. Listen, this is just being friendly. This is just having an open, warm heart towards others. Hospitable actually specifically means you know, even warm towards strangers. The writer of Hebrews says, be hospitable to strangers, for some of you have entertained angels unaware. Even, even as you're reaching out and being kind and warm to strangers, the writer of Hebrews says, you know, some of you have actually had angels pass through your life. You didn't know it, but because you were open, because you were gracious, because you were hospitable, you had the fellowship even though you weren't aware. So this idea of of being friendly, warm, towards fellowship, towards others. Now, clearly, some have a unique gift in this, let's be honest. Some people, and the Scriptures talk about this, the book of Romans kind of itemizing an example of various gifts that the Holy Spirit imparts. One of the gifts that he mentions is hospitality, hospitality. Some just have a natural way of making you feel welcome, making you feel friendly, feeling like they've known you all their life. Some of us, well, not so much. We're a little bit more closed. We're a little bit more reserved. But all of us can still, by God's grace, walk in hospitality. There, is, there should be a friendliness. There should be an openness, a warmness in our leaders, in our ministry leaders, truthfully, in our church. There should be that sense of wanting to connect and engage in one another's lives. Number seven, able to teach. An ability to accurately teach the Scripture. We're just seeing already with Timothy, Paul is saying, you need to correct these false teachers. You need to maintain the true gospel doctrine. He would say in 2 Timothy, you need to rightly divide the word of truth. If you're going to spiritually lead, you're going to have to be able to discern and communicate God's word. In the the book of Titus, and I read this from the NIV, same similar instruction about elders, he says he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it we see that teaching is part of a pastoral role. In the book of Ephesians, it says God has given gifts to men, and he puts pastors and teachers almost as if those often go together. Not always, but often they go together. Now, an ability to teach. This is something that ultimately has to come from God. God has to give that grace. But even if God has given you an ability, a grace to teach, to communicate, there's no substitute for study. There's no substitute for learning the Word of God. Not all are able to teach. Many would like to teach, many want to teach, and many even know and study God's Word well enough, but it doesn't necessarily mean that that's your calling. Desire alone is not enough. God must ultimately equip. There are some gifts and callings that must, be, must come from God, and they must be empowered and enabled by God. And certainly, a teaching pastor, a teaching role is one of those gifts. Well, you say, well, you know, how do I know? How do I know if that's something that I have a, a, a gift in? Pastor, why don't you let me try one Sunday morning? Let's see what happens. Doesn't work that way. (laughs) We're not turning you loose just yet. Take a small step. First of all, study and learn. Are you doing that? Well, no, I just figured I'd figure out if I could teach first. Then I don't want to waste all that time studying. (laughs) Listen, get yourself ready. If you're going to be useful in teaching, you want to apply yourself, study, and learn. Maybe you start by teaching in the children's ministry. Listen, if you can't teach the kids, we certainly don't want you teaching the adults. You've got to be able to find out if you have that gift. And there are opportunities in smaller settings. Maybe you start a Bible study with your own family, with your own home, and let your wife give you the honest response. Uh, honey, you just don't have it. <laughs> you don't know how, how these things come to, to light, but you have to take steps of faith. You have to give some opportunity. You know, we do try, even as a church, we try to give some limited opportunities for teaching. Our men's Bible study, we we try to give different men opportunity just to taste, just to see and, and have opportunity to see if that's something God wants to develop in your life. I remember for myself, I was leading worship. That's how I really got started and fully engaged in ministry. Uh, that's not really a teaching ministry. I mean, there's an element of communicating with the congregation, but not quite the same as teaching the Bible. But then I had an opportunity to go to the Bible ministry school, so I went, and I started learning doctrine and started studying the Word, preparing myself. Perhaps God is calling me to pastor. And then I began to have an opportunity within the Bible ministry school that I was attending there, to teach a worship class. I was a worship leader. I got to teach. And I taught on kind of the, the biblical exhortation of worship. It wasn't a musical class. It was more of a theology about worship type of class. And I found that I was able, by God's grace, to communicate in a teaching setting. And so you don't know until the Lord opens doors and the Lord gives opportunity but it does start with a a desire and it starts with taking steps of faith. We're going to finish today on number eight because we are limited on time. Not given to wine. Not given to wine. It's good just to end on controversy every Sunday, don't you think? The NIV says not given to drunkenness. The ESV says not a drunkard literally, the term means not lingering beside wine. Someone that is not addicted in any way to drinking. Someone that is not in any way participating in drunkenness. Now, our culture, our culture actually romanticizes the idea of drinking, doesn't it? You've seen the beer commercials. (laughs) You, you've seen the whole romance, the whole living the, the, the life, always you know, including dr- the drinking of alcohol. Well, we're not called to follow the advice of the culture, but I will say that it's even become trendy of late within pastors and ministers and Christian leaders. Drinking in moderation is something that now has kind of taken a new you know, kind of freedom in Christ um, opportunity, I guess. And truly, I, I must say, if I'm honest, the Bible, including this verse, does not seem to prohibit exclusively any drinking of alcohol. So theologically, we can't say that the Bible forbids it, but we can say that the Bible gives some very clear warnings and instructions concerning the use of alcohol. Let me remind you of just a few of them. Ephesians 5.18, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation, wasteful debauchery, um, but be filled with the Spirit. Don't be under the influence of wine, Rather, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 1, Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. So there, I think there's just that personal managing of your life, recognizing that alcohol and the use of alcohol has great dangers connected to it. Although the Bible, I cannot say prohibits it, the Bible certainly gives some concerns and some careful use concerning it. There's not only your own life that you need to be considerate of, but you also need to be sensitive to others. As a pastor, I can tell you, I've seen many, many lives damaged and families ruined by alcohol. I've seen leaders Led astray, I, I had a pastor a friend of mine he was co, he was an assisting pastor when I was a worship pastor, and he started having a, a, a drink in moderation privately, at home, appropriately, so to, so he thought, and he got entangled and he got caught up and he became an alcoholic I had to remove him from ministry. Thankfully, I can say he 's been restored, but not until his ministry was taken down he lost his marriage there were consequences there's danger here but also the danger of causing others to stumble leaders need to set an example don't cause others to stumble you've got to be careful acts chapter 20 verse 28 i said to this earlier earlier i want to quote it again therefore take heed to yourself and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Take heed to yourself and be sensitive to others. This is a certain exhortation for leaders and pastors and shepherds, but I would say to all believers, take heed to yourself, but also be sensitive to others that God has entrusted you to have fellowship with. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 12 will close on this verse today. All things are lawful for me, said the Apostle Paul, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We can say that the Christian life enjoys certain freedoms. God has given us all things to enjoy, the Bible says. But clearly there are those obvious sinful prohibitions that God denounces And then there are these other areas where God simply encourages caution. Be careful. Don't let your freedom become an opportunity for the flesh. Don't get entangled. I would leave you with these three words. Evaluation. Are you being honest? Oh, I can handle that. Oh, it's fine. Are you sure? (laughs) Evaluation, and I would say honest evaluation. Take heed to yourself. Moderation would be the second word I would leave you on this topic. Drunkenness is clearly sinful, and so any use of this would be something that should be done moderately, carefully. And then finally, the third word I would give to caution you is discretion. Use discretion. Can you imagine all of us having our pastor and leaders meeting at the pub with with a few beers? We have freedom but that wouldn't be wise, would it? No. Those of you that think it might be, no, it's not. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to come to that kind of leadership meeting. <laughs> we got to be careful. Now, again, we're, we're living in a culture and a time where, you know, and, and, you know, there are different cultures. Do you know that when you go to Europe, you know, where, where wine and beer is much more a normal part of a meal not so much, you know, a drinking experience, it's much more of just kind of a cultural uh, dining experience. There are pastors and great men of God that enjoy that freedom. And so, you know, I would say, evaluation, moderation, discretion. Let those things guide you along with his word. Let's pray. Father, I thank you today for these passages that we've had opportunity to review. And Lord, as we close today, I'm I'm just wanting to pray for certain hearts that may need to respond. Of course, Lord, I always want to give opportunity if there's someone here that needs Jesus. If you're here today and, and you do not know the Lord, you do not have a personal relationship with God. But even as we look today, even as we look at these qualities of spiritual leadership and maturity, something in your heart is saying, God, that's, that's who I want to be. I need a relationship with you. I want you to change my life. I want you to make me into a better man, a better woman, the man, the woman you've called me to be. But I need your mercy. I need your forgiveness I need your grace and help and maybe you're here today and you want to receive Christ. I'd love to pray for you. And then just I'm going to pray for two groups here today, but just before I list the second, I want to respond want you to respond to that. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and God is speaking to you and you're being drawn and you sense his spirit creating this desire for relationship with him and you you know he's spoken to you and you want to receive Christ, you want to be forgiven. You want to accept that gift of his love and grace that he exemplified on the cross. If that's your heart today, just raise your hand right now and I'll pray for you. You can receive Christ right now. Anybody here today, God bless you. Anyone else, you need Jesus. You need to come to him. You sense his heart drawing you. Anyone else besides this one, I want to pray for. God bless you on the aisle. Just before I pray for these two, anyone else? Lord, for these hearts reaching out to you saying, Jesus, I sense that you spoke to me today. I sense your spirit drawing me to you today. I want to receive your love. I want to receive your forgiveness. I acknowledge, God, that I am I'm a sinner. I've missed the mark. I, I want to change. I want you to change me. And I want to start today by inviting you into my life. Forgive me. I believe that you love me. I believe you died on the cross and rose from the dead and have a plan, a purpose for my life. And I want to embrace it today. God, I pray that that would be the prayer and that you would meet those hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I'll ask you to to stand with me. We're going to close in a song of worship. But just before we sing, I want to say one last prayer. And I want to pray for those that are sensing a desire for ministry in your heart, but you're not yet sure what to do with it. Maybe you're, you're not serving. Maybe you are serving, but God is rumbling something in your heart that you feel Him drawing to you. We read it this morning: "He who desires the position of an overseer, and I would say, he who de, he or she who desires a, an opportunity to be serving in ministry desires a good work." And maybe today, you just that's. Really tugging at your heart. God, I have this insatiable desire. Please lead me and direct me that I might find that place that you have for me. It's not for everyone today, but if that's your heart, I just ask you to raise your hand and I'll close in prayer before we sing. Anybody today, the Lord speaking to you very profoundly that way. God bless you. Number of hands, God bless. Between you and the Lord, He knows. But I think it's good. Amen. It's good to respond. It's good to say, Lord, I'm here. Lord, I I desire it. Lord, help me. Show me how to take steps toward it. Help me to fulfill it, Lord. I can't do it without your guidance. I don't want to do it without your guidance. But I think it begins with a desire. It begins with a prayer. That desire is nurtured through prayer. And then God will show you steps to take as you pursue it in faith. God, for these hearts that are saying, Jesus... There's just a desire in my heart to be used by you in ministry. I don't have all the the knowledge of that plan yet. Maybe I know some things. Maybe, Lord, I'm just, all I know is the desire is is growing and becoming something of a fire in my heart. And, Lord, I'm saying, please help me to discover it. I want to pursue it in prayer. I'm not going to rest until I lay hold of it, God. As the Apostle Paul said, I want to press, I want to lay hold of that for which you have laid hold of me. And so God, I pray that you would meet these hearts. You are faithful. God, you want to use our lives. God, you desire to be glorified in our lives. You are honored when our lives are fruitful. And so, God, these prayers are in line with what you long to do. I pray that you would meet them, that you would encourage them, that you would give them wisdom and direction. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's- Thank you for listening to audio from Calvary Chapel, Monrovia. We pray you have been blessed by this sermon. For more information, please visit www.ccmonrovia.org.